glad we're here together worshiping our God and King in this place. Um, let's go ahead um, and, well, actually, let's not stand quite yet. We're, we're going to dive in. I'm going to continue our, our preaching, uh, just picking up where Pastor Josh left off last week and kind of continue the ball forward. But before we stand and hear the text, I just want to kind of place us, if you have missed it or, you know, it's been a while and you've forgotten what's going on in Romans uh, as we enter chapter 9 or continue in chapter 9 here tonight. So just briefly, as we drop in here in Romans 9, where we are finding ourselves is that Paul is in the middle of this kind of continuing explanation of how it can be that the promises of God can be trusted, even God himself can be trusted, even though and even as many, many Jews who are the Old Testament people of God to whom so many of these promises were made, they seem to kind of be missing the boat in terms of getting on board and seeing Jesus as the Messiah. So that's kind of the bigger picture argument that we're kind of dropping in right into the middle of here tonight. So just some context for you. Why don't we stand now together and hear God's word. up in verse 10 of chapter 9 of Romans, God's word says this, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's word, please remain standing and let us pray together. Father in heaven, God, you are good, you are gracious, and you are worthy of praise. Lord, thank you for the ways you have already fed us and encouraged us and convicted us through everything that we've been doing here together. Lord, uh, your spirit has been present as we've been singing and praying and all of these things. Father, continue your work in us and in this place tonight, right now, through this word, we pray for our good and your glory for the good of those who do not yet know you on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Okay. So, church, um, I have a bit of a confession that I want to start off with here tonight. And my confession is this. Uh, I sometimes pretend to be a poet. What I mean by that uh, is that I, throughout my life, various moments, uh, and even still to this day, when I find myself processing things deeply, thinking deeply about whatever might be going on, or feeling uh, deep things about something, or trying to work out even what I'm thinking or feeling about something, I sometimes will kind of scribble down some, some lines, some words, some stanzas, couplets, I don't know what you want to call them, 
uh, and, and sometimes I put these things together, and to me, uh, I call them poems. And um, yeah, like I said, I still do this to this day, and it just helps me process sometimes what, what's going on, or express, you know, celebrate something even. Um, so all that said, I did that this week. As I was preparing for this sermon, processing this uh, text, this chapter, the themes that we see here, as I was reminded of some of the ways I've wrestled with some of these themes in my own life as I've uh, kind of lived this Christian journey. And so I, just to kind of start us off here, uh, I want to subject you to uh, the poems that I wrote this week, uh, if we can call it that. Be gracious to me and, and let me call it a poem. So, um, so here it is. I'll read it. It says, So God chooses some and not others. The poor sinner here, but not his brother. Why, we ask and thrash about, but mercy drowns the feeble shout. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you. Um, need to find, where's the nearest poetry thieves? I don't know. Um, but in truth, I, uh, I wrote that and I read that not to draw attention to me or to my uh, meager uh, poetic abilities, but really um, because I, I find that you know, poetry as a form, I think it's really good in certain ways and maybe better than, than most at expressing like unresolved tension. You know, poems kind of let you explore the space of tension without really landing the plane sometimes. And I think there's a lot of theology that exists in that space as well, where there's tension that is just kind of unresolved, and it just kind of needs to stay that way, right? Because a lot of times we, we end up actually committing, you know, we end up in, in bad error. We end up making big mistakes in the world of, like, studying God's word and seeing what God is saying when we try and resolve the tension in a way that makes perfect sense to our minds, right? We think about Jesus being fully God and fully man. That doesn't really compute. So if we try and resolve it, though, we, we end up making a mistake. We need to hold on to both of those truths, even though there's a tension between fully God and fully man. And so I think as we're looking at some of the themes we're looking at here today, in terms of God, his calling, his sovereignty, human responsibility, there's a kind of tension there that we need to just live in as believers in Jesus. And, and that's okay. That's good. It's a place that we need, we need to be, living in the tension. And so, as we consider these, uh, these next six verses in Romans 9 today, I want to uh, begin beyond just reading uh, my poem there. Um, I want to begin by having us compare and contrast two characters, brothers, actually. And as I begin to describe these guys, your job is to try to sort out in your head which of these two gentlemen is the more honorable, noble, uh, deserving character between them. Okay? Make sense? So brother number one here um, is, for starters, he's the firstborn, so he's got that going for him. Um, he's a skilled hunter. Actually, he's a, he's a bow hunter at that. So uh, 
I don't know if that's a plus or a minus in terms of how you rate humans that they're skilled at bow hunting, but that, that's a thing for this guy. Um, along with uh, hunting, you know, it makes sense. He loves the outdoors. He, he's, he's an out, outdoors, outside kind of guy. And uh, as, as well as, you know, hunting and, uh, you know, bringing home dead animals, he, he's good at killing them, right? And, and I'm sorry, not, not kid, killing them, cooking them, grilling, right? He's good behind the grill is what I'm trying to say. Lord, help me. And uh, on top of that, um, you know, if, if the family was being honest, they were sitting around in a circle, you know, family therapy session, um, it would kind of come out that this brother is dad's favorite. He is his father's favored son. So all that kind of positive, but then there's a dark side. There's a flip side here, and um, the flip side is that this, this guy is also pretty impulsive, uh, almost to the point of being irrational at times, and especially so if he's hungry, 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 uh, or hangry. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't want to meet him when he's, when he's hungry. He's, he, he's a little crazy. And then lastly, on top of all that, he seems to enjoy bringing home women that his parents don't approve of in some ways just to kind of irk them. That's brother number one. Thinking about deserving, noble, worthy, all these things. Brother number two, the second born. He's a more quiet, kind of reserved character. Prefers the indoors as opposed to his brothers, who's the outdoor guy. And along with that, his appearance, he's more clean, clean cut, clean shaven, all of that. If he was sitting around the circle uh, with, with the family, it would come out that he's actually his mom's favorite. He's favored by his mom. And yet, you know, the dark side here, kind of the flip side, is that this guy is one who is really quick to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. He's okay with lying. He will cheat. He will steal. He'll make any kind of deal that needs to be made as long as it ends up being in his favor. He's a very transactional kind of character, you know, kind of quid pro quo. I scratch my... I scratch my, no, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, right? And that's the way he views relationships with folks and even with, that's his religious outlook as well towards, towards God. He's kind of irrational when it comes to love. Now, okay, those are the two guys, that's the picture. Solidify that, zoom out for a second. Who is the more deserving guy? Who's the more honorable then? If you're anything like me, you know, out, outdoorsy, impulsive, uh, mild-mannered, deceptive, you, you kind of want to do over, right? You say, is there a third option here? What, what's behind door number three? Because neither one of these guys seems to be especially worthy or noble or deserving. And if that's your conclusion, similar to mine, you want to see what's behind door number three, then I, then I think you're at least beginning to pick up on a key aspect of what Paul is getting at here in Romans 9, verses 10 through 16. And it's this, that unlike us, unlike you and I here tonight, when God himself chooses 
folks, when God himself chooses between, like, between a brother A and a brother B, or between a family one and a family two, he does so purely on the basis of mercy, and not at all on the basis of who is more deserving or worthy or noble. And you might ask, why? Is it because, you know, God doesn't want, you know, the good, noble, deserving people on his team, so to speak? No, that's not it, right? The answer is, the Lord does this because if he were choosing the noble, worthy, deserving folks, he would have no one to choose from as he looks at everyone on the planet and knows us from, from our core, from our inside out. As Paul has talked about in Romans already in the past, we've seen Paul talk about this, how Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one, he says. A little further along, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we, we can ask ourselves then, so what is the, the solution to this predicament for the Lord? If the Lord wants his redemptive work, if he wants to keep his promises and keep doing this work of redemption on the earth, in the world, how, who is he going to keep his promises to? How is that going to work out? And the answer is, it's going to work out because God is going to have mercy on undeserving folks. Amen. And it is an amen and it is a hallelujah because what that means is that, you know, the other option for God, as opposed to having mercy on undeserving folks, he could just wash his hand of the whole thing and say, I'm, I'm out of here. But he doesn't do that. He presses in and continues to go after us. As the text says in verse 16, the very last one that I read, so then it depends, this, you know, God's purpose, his work of redemption, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God who has mercy. That's how the redemptive story, how the promises are going to be kept, how things are going to go forward. So for just the next few moments then, I want us to think about um, how it is that God's mercy and his choosing go together, fit together in the gospel, in tension, in really important, really needed, really beautiful ways. Mercy and choosing, how do they go together? And so it's going to be the fact, the sweetness, and the sting here tonight. The fact of God's mercy in his choosing, the sweetness of it and the sting of his mercy in his choosing. And as we go through these things we can be thinking about, I think as we go, what does it look like? What might it look like? I can ask this question of myself. You can ask it of yourself. What, what might it look like to be more deeply marked by the mercy of God? To, to be someone who is m deeply moved and motivated by God's mercy beyond anything. I have a few thoughts and suggestions, but maybe I'll hold them uh, until we get a little bit further along. So, first the fact here. Okay? Point one, just purely as a fact. I know we've already seen... You know, God's mercy in his choosing, you know, partly it's a function of what we've seen in Romans 3, right? That 
no one is, is righteous. No, not one. But still, I want to tie that truth, God's mercy and his choosing, a little bit more specifically to these verses, what we're seeing here tonight. And really, the big focal point, and the thing we want to uh, zoom in on here for the next few moments, is where we started just a couple seconds ago, which was thinking about choosing between two brothers. God's mercy in his choosing, no, sorry, God's mercy in his choosing and thinking about this thing between these two brothers. Why is that significant? Well, as many of you probably know already and kind of have caught on to, all of those details that I was giving earlier when I was talking about these two brothers were not uh, just random things that I was coming up with off the top of my head. I was actually tra- describing two very specific people. Who, know, who can tell me, who was I describing when I was giving those two lists of brother A and brother B? I think I'm hearing it, yeah. It was Jacob and Esau, okay? As, as we read about these guys in Genesis, especially if you haven't ever read through Genesis, you can find their story, especially some of the things I was alluding to in those two lists that must have seemed really weird to you if you had no idea what I was saying. So sorry about that. But read Genesis 25 through like 33, and some of that will, will make more sense. And it's these guys who are front and center in this passage in Romans 9 here. They're named specifically in verse 13, but even right away in verse 10, we see them being mentioned as the children of Rebekah and Isaac. And so as the children of Rebekah and Isaac, we know that they are in this line of promise. We know that they are the grandkids of Abraham and Sarah. And so they're in this this promised line, this story that God is weaving, this redemptive work that he's doing in the world. And yet, even before these two guys, these two brothers were born, they were told, twins by the way, as well, same dad, same mom, twins. So you can't get like more similar, right, on paper. Same, Same parents, twins, even before they were born though. We are told that the Lord himself kind of steps in and does some stuff, right? He steps in and kind of reverses some of the normal expectations, the cultural expectations, the normal order of things. And in so doing, what he does is he takes the second-born son, Jacob, and makes him kind of the primary privileged son in accordance with, you know, the promise of God and what he's doing in the world over and against the one who was the the legitimate firstborn, even just by, you know, a hair. But still, Esau was the firstborn. And God reverses that and says, nope, Jacob is going to be the privileged one according to the line of promise, not Esau. In other words, again, so these guys have done nothing good or bad. Neither of them are obviously deserving or noble, and yet we see God working in this story, choosing. He's, He's selecting moving between these guys so this is the fact that we see here god mercifully working in this story and we see this fact again i think in verse 11 uh, we see here paul referring to god's purpose of election we see god's mercy and his choosing in this word election you might ask okay what is that word what does that really mean i think an answer that we could supply for what is election is that election is this biblical teaching, this biblical reality that God in his mercy chooses some, that he calls some, that he has compassion 
in specific ways, mercy in specific ways on particular people. That he is obligated to none, but he engages and, and interacts and pursues some in unique ways. We see this, I think, uh, hints of that in other places throughout the scriptures as well. We see Jesus saying things like, you know, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So it's Jesus talking about this kind of this like particular group, right, this group that the Father has given. We see Jesus talking to a Pharisee at one point, and he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And then he follows that up by saying, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. Again, hinting at this, there's this unique calling that is going out to some who are the sheep. And Jesus saying to this, this Pharisee, you're, you're not. I, uh, when I was at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, uh, the, my textbook in my systematic theology class was Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And... Uh, really uh, a lot of good stuff in that volume, and uh, he defines election in this way. He says, election is an act of God before creation in which God chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of God's sovereign good pleasure. That is, that is the fact of God's mercy in his choosing that we are seeing in this passage here tonight in these verses. He does both. He chooses and he has mercy. They come together. Beautiful and intentional. And so that leads me to this second point, which is the sweetness. What is the sweetness of this, this teaching that we're seeing Paul kind of fleshing out here in Romans 9? Is there sweetness to it at all? Or do we just want to slam it shut and like leave it behind? I think there is sweetness in what we are seeing here. And it's this. Both for ourselves personally and also for others, there's good news. If being chosen or being elect of God is rooted in mercy, that means it's not rooted in a whole bunch of other things. Being chosen is rooted in mercy. It means it's, that it's not rooted in me. It's not rooted in my good works or my merit or my ability to perform to a certain standard or even just the strength of my faith. If it's in God's mercy, it's not about all of those works. We see uh, uh, Paul talking about this and talking about how it's not up to the human will or exertion. And there is, there's sweetness in that. There's rest for us in that. Gosh, I, I can rest because it's God's mercy. It's not my works. It's not my willing it or, you know, gritting it to make it happen. That word exertion there, the picture that goes along with that is the, the idea, the picture of kind of running, just working really hard. And mercy allows us to rest. I think we see similar themes as we think about what is said about Jacob and Esau in verse 11. How, again, this idea that though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, God chooses. There isn't any merit involved in the choice. So I think one practical, really encouraging aspect of this teaching 
is that it means that no one is ever too far gone. No one is ever a lost cause if salvation is rooted in mercy, pure mercy, right? Not about your record. Whether you are one who tends to be, you know, the prodigal brother who's like wild and out there and crazy, you can never be too crazy for God's mercy not to get you and bring you home. You know, if you're the legalistic, self-righteous brother, like, God can break into that too by his mercy. You're never too, you know, too listy that God can't blow that up and say, no, it's about my grace and my mercy and my love. Exhibit A for this is the author of this text, right? We're looking for an example, Paul himself. Paul was one of these self-righteous guys, this legal, you know, he was very zealous, very passionate, and in his mind, totally passionate about the right thing, the correct way, but he was a persecutor of the church. He was hurting God's people, and God, in his mercy, whammies Paul, right? Turns him around, puts that zeal to a new purpose, a zeal to build up the church, to grow the church, proclaim the gospel to his, his Jewish brothers and to the whole world, to the Gentiles as well. Paul's exhibit A of how anything is possible when God's mercy is at the root of salvation, of redemption. Amen? There's sweetness here. It's, it spills over for us in our lives as we think about evangelism we can proclaim the gospel to anyone and it's not a lost cause even if we've been banging on that door for years and years and years keep doing it god's mercy is real same thing with our prayer lives you know there's no such thing as a wasted prayer if salvation redemption is rooted in god's mercy as josh alluded to earlier uh, his quote right at the beginning of the service, if you heard it, was on forgiveness. If God's mercy is real, a spillover effect of that is that we have this new capacity to forgive other people because we have been forgiven of so much in God's mercy. Works of service, mercy, works of mercy. We can serve others in practical ways because God has served us in his mercy by the gospel. You could go on, but I'll stop, right? The sweetness here, you could, you could, there's tons of it. God's mercy is good and beautiful. But it is, there's something of a double-edged sword here, right? So the second point of God's mercy, not only is there sweetness, there's also a sting. There's a sting to this teaching as well that we need to admit, that I need to admit as a guy up here talking about God's word. I can't just gloss over it, ignore it, pretend like it's not there, even if I wanted to. So what is the sting here? And I, I think the sting is this, both for us and for others, if being chosen and elect of God is rooted in God's mercy, then two things follow from that. Number one, we are debtors to God. We don't like being debtors to anyone on anything. There's a sting in that. We are debtors to God. And number two, it means that we are not ultimately in control of the story of redemption. 
We're not ultimately in control of who's in and who's out, who's saved and who's not, yet not even for ourselves, much less our loved ones that we want to be in, but we're not seeing that happen. We're not in control and we don't like that and it stinks. We're not masters of our own fate and our own destiny. And as, you know, as Western Americans, that hurts. <laughs> we we want to be able to be in control. Our, our choice is supreme, right? There's a sting in these things. We see this in the text multiple ways, multiple places. Verse 15, one example, where again, uh, the Lord ultimately is saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God is asserting his transcendence in this whole story. God's saying, I'm going to do what I desire here. Whether you want me to have mercy on this person or not, I'm going to do it. And if I withhold my mercy, that's his business as well. God sets the terms. We feel the sting, I think, especially, though, in verse 13, don't we? Where Paul uses this word, hate. We don't like to think about hate at all. Much less thinking about God hating. Like, that, that you know, we think of, you know, a hate crime is like the worst possible thing we can, we can imagine. And yet here we see the Bible talking about Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. What do we do with that? We think God is love, and he is love. And again, we're back to that tension, right? This exists in tension. And I think if we try to resolve the tension, like I, I was saying at the beginning, we'll end up in error. We'll make them, if we try to just gloss it over or ignore it, we'll end up going off the rails in some way. And so we, we can't do that. We don't want to do that. So I think the best we can do is put this in its context and say, okay, as we look at what's going on in this verse of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, what is the reference there? In reference to what is Jacob loved and Esau hated? And I think if we look at the text, uh, the context, it's in reference to, Esau is hated in reference to inclusion in the line of promise. Right? He, is, he is not going to be in this line that is going to lead from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob all the way through, you know, David, ultimately Jesus. Right? Esau is being hated. He's being rejected from being in that line of promise that leads to Christ. I think that is what is being asserted here. And there's sting in that because, again, there's this idea of selectivity. God is choosing some and not others. It was Sarah and not Hagar, as we saw last week. It was Isaac, not Ishmael. And now it's Jacob, not Esau. And, you know, we want to say, you know, maybe you want to say this, unjust, not fair. And Paul anticipates that. We see that in verse 14. He says, so, he begs the question, is there injustice on God, God's part? And his answer is the strongest possible negation. And he says, by no means. Is there injustice? By no means. Why? Because it's all based in mercy. We don't deserve it, is the sting, right? 
if God wanted to walk away, he would still be just and worthy of worship. It's not based on this. So, practical impacts of this, I think, as we let this sink in, the reality of God's mercy. It sets us free. It sets us free when we realize the reality of God's mercy and his choosing, how it's impacted us. It sets us free to be people who just say thank you to God. It sets us free to be people who just let God be God. Let God be the one who worries about salvation and who's in and who's out. And we just get to worship him, faithfully tell people about Jesus, pray for people faithfully, and let him choose, right? Let him figure that out. In his mercy, he's going to be good. At the end of the day, we will all, no one will be in heaven pointing a finger at God saying, did us wrong sets us free to be to be grateful people free to be forgiving free to be humble free to be the sheep that we are it's the fact of god's mercy the sweetness of it and the sting of it ultimately we know that christ Paid the ultimate price. Christ himself felt the ultimate sting of death so that we might have the ultimate sweetness of being his people. We go back to that. We rest. We stay in the tension. We don't try to resolve it. And we say like Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Praise God who has mercy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, thank you for your grace and mercy and kindness. God, thank you for this table, this communion meal that we are about to partake of and the way it speaks to us of these truths.